Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan? Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, glad to have you, Choices Not Chances. We got a good one for you today. Um, again, just as a... Uh, just as a note, administrative on the side, if you see anything during this episode that needs to be passed on, don't be selfish with the information. Share it out. Put it on the platforms and get these messages out there. This is my attempt at our attempt at, you know, using our platform as a conduit for information passing for both the current pipe hitters that are still going over and waging American resolve on our behalf. And as well as those guys that are transitioning and, you know, finding their new roles in their new places. So uh, without further ado. <clears throat> When I was young, I would hear stories of war from the stories of the greatest generation to the heroes of Vietnam. My father would make subtle recommendations about what a person should say and should not say regarding questions of war, particularly to war veterans and most particularly at the time, Vietnam war veterans. The heroes of Vietnam came home to unrest and protest they gave their youth insanity and 58,220 men sacrificed the full measure in that place for the minute fought in vietnam i am eternally grateful and thank you the vietnam generation paved the way for my generation of war fighters to get help and establish the veterans administration as we know it today some of the men from that generation chronicled their war exploits and published them for the rest of the world to know what happened there this is and was more important than you can imagine uh, without written testimony and firsthand accounts of the battlefield how can we learn from them as a people one of the more be uh, detailed books on the vietnam conflict is called battle lines it was written by lieutenant colonel dave brown of the usmc and his uh, and his lovely daughter tiffany brown holmes lieutenant colonel brown earned a Silver Star Medal for gallantry in combat, and he was the company commander in Vietnam who took over for uh, company command for Fox Company 2-5 shortly after they cleared Way City. Following his time in Vietnam, uh, first as an advisor and then as Fox Company's company commander, Brown had a distinguished career in the Marine Corps. Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brown instructed at the U.S. Naval Academy and headed up the Marine Corps procurement budget. Upon retirement, he was a logistics, uh, a logistics consultant for both the United States Marine Corps and the Navy, and he served as the director of the 2nd Marine Division Association. He's published numerous, numerous articles in the Marine Corps Gazette, Gazette and the Amphibious War Review. He's also authored uh, other books on training, automated information systems, and logistics, as well as some other books directly pertaining to, uh, to combat and, and um and the ways of the fighting man, let's say. Um, 
very uh very uh, active in his community and today we have the distinct pleasure of sitting down with him for a little while and uh and talking about doing kind of a review of battle lines looking at the vietnam conflict and then and then you know having the conversation that's that that spurs for there from there so um dave lieutenant colonel brown thank you so much for coming out this is it's an honor to have you here and uh and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. We've been talking about it for a while, so thank you. Yeah, Ryan, thank you very much, and uh, hello to you too, Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And you have some questions, or want me to start anywhere, or what? Yeah, so like first, the forum that we that we usually hold is, uh, I like to know, I like to know where you started. I like to know your upbringing, um, siblings, uh, parents, was it single mother, uh, or, or both parents in the household? Um, and, and religion uh, as a factor for me. I'm writing another book, as you know, as well. And that's one of the things that uh, some of the main points that I'm taking from key leaders that I know in my life have led and excelled. What was the foundational building blocks in the beginning? And it seems that it's usually the same. And so if we can start there at childhood and just kind of let's chronologically walk through how we got to where we where we ended up. Yeah, sure. I'm from uh, Shillington, Pennsylvania. And that's a suburb of Reading in eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, born there um, back in 39, uh, actually uh, 64 years ago. Yesterday was my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah. Perfect. And, and uh, my, I have a twin brother. Okay. Five, five minutes older than me. So at any rate, uh, uh, I grew up with a twin brother. I grew up with a loving uh, mother and father. Uh uh, my dad started his own business, and I was to go into it, but I never did go into it. Uh, but for, uh, I would say, the summers in college, and then as a reserve officer, I I uh, got out, joined the reserves, and for my own sake, uh, but worked for him for almost nine months. But after three months when I was out, my first three years, um, my battalion, the 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, left Hawaii and went to Vietnam. And they went to Da Nang. Hmm. And there I was, stuck in Pennsylvania selling candy. <laughs> God, <laughs> get me back. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually went to uh, uh, summer camp with the, uh, the the reserves. And I was a forward observer. And we went to Fort Sill. So that boned up my... Uh, Artillery skills, my, mm. my ability to call in uh, uh, artillery, whatever else. Um, going back, I had a sister, and she's three years younger than I am. Uh, you got to know when you're a twin. I don't know if you two have ever been a twin, but when you have a twin brother, he's a little bit smaller than me. But you wrestle all the time, and you <laughs> fight all the time. I know I was re. re- Gailing some of these things on the phone with him, wishing him a birthday, happy birthday yesterday. And I can recall vividly, um, we, we all have our own memories of our own brothers. And they, you, and they're slightly a bit different. But I remember one time I'm feeling really macho. Now we're dealing with a, probably a fifth grader with a BB gun. Boom, got him like that. <laughs> I'll get you, I'll get you. And then I couldn't take it anymore. I said, hey, okay, here's my shirt. Go ahead and shoot Get me. me. Back. <laughs> yeah, so she, he shot me back. So, But we wrestled all the time, and and uh, those kind of things just kind of worked out. And uh, we were naturally inclined to do sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started competitive swimming at, in the YMCA playing, um, 
I'd say in fourth grade mm-hmm. through seventh grade or eighth grade. And um, then Doug became a very champion swimmer, went mm-hmm. on to a, a scholarship uh, to Oklahoma. And uh, I stayed with football uh, and lacrosse in college. And so I stayed with a kind of aggressive sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved doing those type of things. So now that you kind of know that, there's this feeling of aggression inside of you. Mm-hmm. And we'll go back to the, while we're on this subject, we'll, we'll go back to my advisory time. And there's some thoughts I thought you have in mind. Why did you want to extend mm-hmm. to get a rifle company? Mm-hmm. Well, when, you go, when you're a psychological officer, psych, psych ops, uh, and you're doing th- non-combatant missions mm-hmm. o- over there in uh, in the Rungside Special Zone where I was uh, for a whole year. There's this burning desire to get it into the middle of the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it it was like practicing football, and never playing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, I don't know if you ever played football, but being on the sideline is not fun. Mm-hmm. Getting in there and mixing it up is, is where it's all about. Mm-hmm. And so there's that passion inside of you, and you're going to get to that. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. So uh, you have another question for me? or No, you? no, yeah, we'll keep going. And I do. I will have uh, questions as we come up to, to the advisory portion you because sure? I don't understand it. Um, but for, first, uh, at what point do you know, what's your earliest memory of thinking, yeah, like, I'm going to go be a Marine, and I'm going to go do this. It's a good question. Um, I had no idea whatsoever about the service. Um, Happily playing football, happy playing lacrosse. And, you know, lacrosse is in the spring of the year. And it came Easter time, I'm home on vacation Mm. and taking a break from early lacrosse until the more serious games. And my dad said, well, what are you going to do about the uh, draft? What draft? <laughs> That's where my mind was. It had to do with girls, beer. And lacrosse. And lacrosse. <laughs> and it, anyhow, uh, so I didn't that. know much about the draft. I, I was, for the first semester at college, in the Air Force ROTC. Mm-hmm. That was an option course. I thought, well, I'll try it. And golly, it was like, uh, well... Anyways, you know me by now. Those guys were not the same as me. It's not the they, same. They not the same cloth. No, no, they didn't. They didn't even know where the football field was. You know that type of thing. Yeah. So I couldn't identify with. Them. So I dropped out of that. But uh, I, this draft thing. Um, so I asked him about it, and he said, "Yeah, draft's live." You know, uh, I said, "It is." You know, I thought, it, oh, well, well, "This." So I get back to uh, college in Ohio, Granville, Ohio. The name of the college is Denison University. Mm-hmm. And it was about, we had about 1,500 students. So it was a small university, but very nice. Mm-hmm. And um, I walk into the student union down below one of the old buildings. And, and lo and behold, there's the Marine Corps officer selection officer. Hey, <laughs> you're a Marine. Yeah, yeah. I knew about Marines. You know, mm-hmm. John Wayne, I used to watch those those films. You know, <laughs> you turn, turn their back to... The 1950s, uh, where I was growing up and watching, sure. and sure, John Wayne was playing uh, all sorts of Iwo Jima uh, Marine films and things like that. Well, at mm-hmm. any rate, uh, um, so I said, well, do you have a program or something? You know, I asked a stupid question because I really had no clue. Yeah. And uh, and he said, yeah, all you have to do is take the test. Well, I took the test, and it, it was questions like, uh, 
If you're landing a small boat, do you go with the current or against the current? And, you know, I, I had been down at the, the Jersey Shore enough that I knew <laughs> you don't go with the current. You, but those questions were not that tough. Not that I was sure, brilliant. Sure. I wasn't. Uh, believe me. Uh, but but those questions were just fundamental. Well, you passed. Congratulations. I said, okay, well, what's next? Okay, you got to go here. Here's April. We said, well, two, two, two months in June, you got to report into Quantico. What? Do what? <laughs> Wait, Quantico, where's that? That type of thing. And um, so at any rate, that's how I got in. And um, I does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it wasn't like it was a calling that was sucking you in. It was kind of by, no. by chance, would you say? Good question. I had no or little bitty information. My mom had a younger brother, several years younger, and he went into the uh, Navy in World War II. Mm-hmm. And he stayed, I think, in San Francisco. Now, my dad and her other brothers were too old for the draft of World War II. Mm-hmm. And so there was not much information about fighting and services in our, our family. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when I got to the Marine Corps, of course, I didn't know much. I had that Air Force experience. With, that wasn't a clue. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at any rate. Check. So you're at Denison. You run into the recruiter. You take the test. And that, that kind of just starts the beginning of, of the process of the ball rolling. Yeah, and I will say um, it, it's an officer selection officer because there's some stories coming up. If you're talking about my current book ever, and we get on to it, yeah. and you'll know about the OSO and the officer selection officer, and there is some, well, that's a story about uh, African-American Marines uh, mm-hmm. who become officers and all the um, adjustments the Marine Corps made bringing in African-American officers into the Marine Corps. So mm-hmm. they changed the name OSO to s- several other names. I just want to share that with you later on uh, sure. if you have interest. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, talk to me about uh, talk to me about Quantico when you go there and you get immersed into the actual training for the first time. What's that like? You know, it was very easy. The only thing is, I'm as clumsy as can be. So, drill uh, was not. They used to pull me pull me out of the platoon <laughs> and practice going up and down. I, I'm, right now, I got one bow leg that sticks out like this. The other was pretty straight. And uh, uh, but, gee, I was not the most graceful thing even in football and lacrosse uh i was aggressive but it worked there because you could just run into things i was a pure jock i was not an athlete my brother is an athlete but i'm more of the kind of guy who's uh well besides that at governor mifflin high school in shillington Mm -hmm. i was co-captain of five varsity teams which my brother and i the first two years sophomore and junior swimming and the last three years, or last two, my senior year rather, I was uh, football, um, swimming, and track. Mm. I was president of my junior and senior class. So there's a, there's this inkling to kind of come on, guys, let's let's get going. Here's where we're going. What's the coach? Okay, coach saying that. Let's go. What are we yeah. waiting for? Blah, blah, blah. So you can understand when I say I was an advisor, I had one or two passive kind of. Uh, Vietnamese counterparts. Mm-hmm. Doo, 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 doo. It didn't, didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get me in a war right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you waiting for? It was, um, 
was OCS, uh, I would imagine, structured different sure, to facilitate uh, quick turnover to get people out at the time? or No, you know, I joined before the war. Uh-huh. Uh, so I went through uh, OCS, actually it was platoon, platoon Leaders course, which is a, OCS for graduates. Uh-huh. And Platoon Leaders is it's a program for undergraduates where you do 12 weeks. And if you were, like I did, my, only my junior year, remember mm-hmm. the, the draft issue, then I did them all at once. Mm-hmm. And then if you were freshman and sophomore year, you do six weeks, then you come back your junior, senior year. Check. And that's PLC, Platoon Leaders course. Check. Yeah. Okay. And um, so how was it? Yeah, uh, yeah, other I mean, than the I mean, drill, uh, it was a piece hear, of cake. I hear people talk about it now, and it's, it's I just a, wonder what it is. It's a piece of cake for me, who was a jock. You know, I could yeah. do, I could do all that stuff, and so that was not very difficult. And my ability to lead guys it was was you already had that natural yeah, that from was, your that, school and yeah different teams. I was co-captain in my a football team at college too. So you know, all those things are just kind of yeah. Well, let's let's do it, guys. Mm-hmm. Where's the war? Mm-hmm. Well, you know that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so you go OCS, you get your schools out of the way, and then where do you go from there? What's your what's your first unit yeah, that first, you go to? First duty station was uh, Hawaii, for the First Marine Brigade, and I was truly blessed. Um, you you kind of check in, and I was met by let's say the executive officer of the rifle company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the next day I met the commanding officer, tall. Six foot one, spoke so quietly. Hey, here's what's important. Was probably the most dynamic leader I've ever had, even though he spoke quietly. And it was all education. Mm-hmm. And he, it's like he, he grooms you. And then Captain Steele, who uh, became in 19, um, I would say, 1980s, mid-80s, the commanding general of the second marine division okay so uh this guy here was super and we became very close friends mm. uh, so that uh we saw each other periodically even when i got out for 10 months and then <clears throat> coming back in we stayed in touch by uh, communications i i think we had emails at that time that let's see i came back in and uh well, no, they didn't have emails. So it, was, it, was, it was 66 when I came back in. I don't think emails were there yet. No, no, but we got the word. There was, a, there was a, drums. <laughs> Whistling. <laughs> Smoke Pigeon, signals. Pigeons. <laughs> yeah, at any rate, uh, yeah, in fact, uh, I have a story to tell once we get to the rifle company. We'll let you go on, though. No, no, I want you to go on. So now you're at your rifle company. You're Not checked yet. into that. Uh, and oh, you want to? Yeah, let's yeah. kick into it. Okay, so. You know, I have this great rapport with uh, O.K. Steele, Orlo, and he goes by Ort, uh, and he's still alive. He's 90. Well, why? I don't know, because he's a <laughs> chain smoke. Chesterfield still is. You couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he's uh, 90. And um, so I, I uh, got extended. You go home for uh, a month when you extend. Mm-hmm. And then you come back, and now I'm a captain. Mm-hmm. I would say a mid-range. Well, they had a program there different than what we had because we enlarged the size of the Marine Corps, I don't know if you know this, but from about 174 to about 300,000. 
As a result, we didn't have enough lieutenants. Mm. So they went through all the units, and anybody who was uh, like a staff sergeant, a gunny in particular, master sergeant, anybody who could probably just raise their hand were commissioned mm -hmm. to fill in the blanks. So, um, and this is prior to, or, well, this, or is, this is following. Yeah, this is in '66. Start of '66, that program started happening. Okay. Because we were going up that big, and uh, it was so. If if you were a staff sergeant, you guarantee you'd be in lieutenant. In, yeah, and um, they had a nice program. I mean, off the subject, but back on that and off the subject again. But uh, um, so they stayed through Vietnam, and then when we downsized, they were given an option to retire as a first lieutenant or a captain, or go back as a a rank or two higher, like a master, a master sergeant or master guns or mm -hmm. sergeant major or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so the the choices were nice for them. And I I think it was 50-50 what they did. Yeah. I, I don't know the st statistics on that. Uh, but they were fun. I had a Mustang. <clears throat> and they're all Mustangs. And I had a Mustang who was my best lieutenant as mm. a com company. So at any rate, uh, I get into Da Nang after my one month. Um hiatus from the war and I know better at how the game is played I had, when I was first in I, I had a, a job at the second marine division staff I was at the ranges and and uh, education officer something like that mm -hmm. uh, and so I knew all the other how the rest of the police the rest of the uh, offices the adjutant and until and all that, how they all work uh so i got there i went up so at any rate i got the, the plane gets off everybody over here you know but then i guess in like your typical trooper you know you do exactly what the guy says and um i saw them being herded and i went up to a jeep i said where's the adjutant's office you know so i just broke away from the group they they had no idea who who was on the plane or, mm -hmm. or, or you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, we lost a lot of guys, uh, just so you know that. Uh, mm -hmm. So having a roster, and we came up over on our own individual orders, different than what you guys did. Mm -hmm. And so because you deployed together as a unit is much better than going on to individuals. Okay, mm -hmm. I will assure you of that, even though you, the guys that, you, that get injured or the like, hurts you more because you know them longer and you know their girlfriend or wife or something like that. Whereas we got mixed together. At any rate, I jump in a Jeep and go off of the adjutant's office. Where's the headquarters? Okay, so I get there. I go to the adjutant. Hey, I said, you got a list of uh, commanding officers here, battalion commanders? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I was captain and he was a lieutenant. And so I go down there and there goes, oh, Major O.K. Steele. <laughs> two five, got it. Yep. Okay, can I uh, <laughs> contact two five? Yes, sir. Here's the phone. Yep, up, up. Hey, to, may I speak to uh, Major Steele? Yeah. And uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm back in town. I need a company. He says, "Do not leave that office. <laughs> Do not leave that office." I and he was forty miles away. Uh, I will have a jeep there in an hour and, a, and fifteen minutes. It, You're mine. So, so anyway, yeah, that type of thing. So. Now, okay. now, just so I understand this better, had at this point you'd already done your advisory time. I did, yeah. And mm -hmm. so, can you can you backtrack just for a minute and explain to me the advisory program, what your role is, and and your thoughts in general about 
how well it worked for what it was designed for. Right. I can. Um, let's start with me as the uh, schools and range officer in the G3 of the 2nd Marine Division at Lejeune. Okay. In what we call building number two, you know that one, you know where the circle is, and you go down to the very end of the river, and there's a building there, and it's, mm-hmm. F, uh, it's uh, the logistics building. I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the division headquarters was, not up there where you, yeah. it is today. And um, so I was up there, um, and now you got to ask me again what we, oh, the SAPs. Uh, so, um, I get orders after there because I was due to get, go to Vietnam. You know, I came back from on, on active, active duty, and they had to put me somewhere until I got into the queue. Sure. So it was 10 months after there at Lejeune. And then I got orders to uh, SIAB school, a psychological officer's operations course, that type of thing, or psychological officer operations officer of course so one of those two mm-hmm. and uh, of course i i knew all about that like you know about it today right zero <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing loud music although i did have a school's catalog with me so i had kind of a hint and things like that um but i really because of schools officer i wanted to go to jump school first so i went to got myself a set of orders to jump school combined the two and that's what i did there you go. so i got my five jumps at uh, fort Benning, and then I went to Fort Bragg for mm. at the John F. Kennedy uh, School of Special Warfare. And that's where all those kind of things were. Um, on top of the SIAP school, and I'll get to it, uh, on top of the SIAP school, I also was ordered to the, what we call the MATA course, M- Military Advisory MATA. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> course, something like that, uh, of course. And that was uh, where you learned to become an advisor. Mm-hmm. And whether you're going to be a combat advisor or like ISOPS advisor, it didn't matter. You're all together with all the Marines. You hang around together. We get free jumps and all that kind of stuff. We'll jump mm-hmm. with the 82nd was a lot of fun. And that's other experiences uh, that, <laughs> that are fun. Oh, yeah. And at any rate, so um, I got those two. And then I reported after the jump school, I reported into the into the SIAP school. And uh, psychological operations basically is a is a feature of war that combatants don't get involved with but there's a need to uh, communicate that essentially uh, your allies and you are friendly guys and you have good values and things like that and the bad guys are bad guys Mm -hmm. and and so how do you communicate that to everybody is the game uh and it's not that you're an expert on um broadcasting or things like that uh they, they do talk they, the academics talk about it uh, you know flyers dropping flyers from there or handing them out uh and and um and then intelligence hooking on with intelligence when you get someone's ready to turn themselves in or something like that you you do things like you try to get people to what we called chu hoi mm-hmm. which was a surrender uh, program at Chu Hoi, and uh, and so when they did, then what do you got to do with them? Well, you know, they go to a program, but you, you try to get them to surrender, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, where 
I got a stamp saying, I, okay, I've been to the school. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm a brilliant guy when it comes to psyops. Check the box. Uh, yeah, the, uh, it's interesting, though, at one point in your book, you talked about uh, uh, capturing a guy and then psyops blasted out some stuff to kind of discourage the enemy and, and almost made it seem like, uh, you know, shamed the enemy to the point where I, I want to say in the book he was crying because... Uh, psyops was doing their job and they're trying to turn these guys over but kind of at the expense of a pow and that kind of stuff is real and that's kind of where psyops goes with it once they're into the combat situation yeah we captured i think we we're talking about capturing that guy and there's a photograph i think in there of me talking to him because i can mm-hmm, speak mm-hmm. uh half, let me can't use the word half-ass vietnamese <laughs> i i can't i couldn't uh, comprehend listening as well because people are speaking so fast. Mm-hmm. But I did have a, a lot of the words memorized so that I could make sentences and, and get that across, particularly with uh, my counterpart when I was an advisor and others who got to know me in mm-hmm. my broken accent and something like that. It's like we all know folks with a, not a natural English accent. Mm-hmm. and um, But we get to understand what they're saying anyhow because it's, it's a little sure. bit. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, so um it's interesting what psyops brings to the table that's for sure well yeah i I, when i when i got there uh, okay i'm a psyops advisor we have uh i'm going to describe the place where i got you're laying in um Mm -hmm. which is uh just 20 miles north of uh of uh, saigon okay and when the saigon Somehow got a stamp by, by the advisory group and immediately had someone drive me out to the advisory place. We were at Nyabe, uh, N-H-A-B-E, notice how I say Nyabe, it's Nyabe, uh, actually in, in how you pronounce it. There's um, five accents that go along with uh, the same word mm. in uh, like, uh, if you're using B-E, Bay, uh, that type of thing, because it's going to be pronounced like that. But it, it, it some, if they have a dot underneath it, it's Bay, like this. And if it go, has a line that goes up, it goes Bay. And if that line goes out, Bay. And it has a, a circle line, like above it, a Bay. So when you're talking that... Uh, Difficult to... It's something that you get used to. They know okay. my broken accent and things like that. Uh but those are the things when I, the advisor course, there was in the morning we, we had uh, language. Mm. And then how many times did we have to say, Bao, di bon taxi, bao new tin, go buy taxi, how much money? Uh, that type of thing. <laughs> the say it again, say it again, say it again. <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, um, good show on that. And. Um, so I got there, and in, the vehicle comes in, and it's a little town, and they're all little towns, you know, Hamlet. It's a amounts to be a Hamlet, only it's kind of grown up because we have a, a medium-sized, small-sized Navy base on the other side of it. So we have the town first, then a, a gate that you go through the regional forces compound okay. mm-hmm. where I was an advisor, and then there's another gate was so built into the uh, river junction, which was a mile across this way, a mile across that way, enlarged out, and then the Navy was there. Mm. And they had mines. Okay, so why was it important? We were from the South China Sea, probably 20 miles inland. Mm-hmm. There were two rivers coming from the South China Sea 
kind of making a, a V, if you will. Um, and at one side is the uh, Vung Tau uh, shipping channel, which went from the South China Sea, U.S., and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And big ships would go up up that uh, river and on up to either either mainly up to Vung Tau. Uh, Vung Tau, again, um, is just... Uh, well, it's, it's twenty miles out of Saigon, but it would, it was the main uh, logistical base mm. for the U.S. for uh, probably two core in Saigon area, Rungsat Special Zone, and four core or the Delta, and from there all the supplies went out mm-hmm. and all that kind of either transport or something like that. And then there was another one called the Saigon River, which also went from the South China Sea. And that went up there, almost meeting. In, in other words, it, they came like a triangle. We were at the top of that triangle, mm-hmm. Yang Bay. So mm-hmm. we had that whole triangle, and it was this forest of death. Zhongshat, Zhongshat, Daku, Daku Zhongshat. Daku is a, a territory um, or a area or something like that. Daku and Zhongshat. Um, are you a G? Zhong. And it had one of those little markers that went down, room shot, and then S-A-T with a dot underneath it, but you pronounce your S's like sh- shot. So, Daku uh, room shot, and uh, that was a triangle. Now, what happened in that triangle is, and we remember, it's it's not part of I-Core or three, two-Core, three-Core, four-Core. It was a special zone. Hmm. So, what happened, the Navy was in charge of making sure our supplies safely got up the river. They were not blown up by mines. Mm-hmm. And the, the VC had a good control of mine warfare. In the water? In the water. Mm-hmm. And on their sides. Mm-hmm. And at Vung Tau, which was one corner, but on the other, the far side of the river, so you know, you get the triangle. And it's got a river, but it's got the side on the Rungsat side, and then the other side of the river is Vungtau, mm-hmm. that one place. Mm-hmm. It's on this. It's it's a, um, a vacation spot. For it was a big, big vacation spot, and a lot of R and R in country R and R went there. Mm-hmm. Then they could be on the beaches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was safe. But then the, the ships had to traverse all the way up through there, so the Navy had minesweepers. And they'd go out first thing in the morning and make sure that it was clear for the ships to go up through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Navy had maybe two, three, four, I, I think two helicopters that would act in support. The Navy had, uh, and I don't know, there's not a thing there, I don't believe it was here, um, had patrol river boats, mm-hmm. PBRs. PBR. Patrol boats river, that's how it is. But it's we patrol river boats. But mm-hmm. pole boat, you know how the military does things. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, very crayonish. Yeah, they're very creative too. There's <laughs> 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 some little guys who's going to stumble on. What are they trying to explain the reference? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, now we're serious. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, we we cleared that river all the time. Now, the Rungsat Special Zone was a swamp. Mm-hmm. It was like, think Everglades. Mm-hmm. We had 20-foot tides. That is a lot. More than our, where I live out there, where the, the white oak is, and we have maybe three-foot, four-foot mm-hmm. tides way mm-hmm. up. The, we're up. But they had 20-foot. And that water ran 
through their multi-creeks and multi-rivers going through this 20, 20 miles to get up, up to our area, okay? Mm-hmm. There were five villages, or hamlets, I'm sorry, three hamlets. And my PSYOPs guys, and so, the, no, wait a minute, the Navy was a regional, uh, regional forces. Mm-hmm. And they, the, each one of the villages had popular forces. So what we're dealing with is local cops, more or less, military types, but it's a local cops, and they probably weren't educated too much and things like that. And each one of those hamlets down downriver would have maybe 100 people living in there with kids and all that kind of stuff. If it had 200, it had 200. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one cl- across from Vugtau was a little bit bigger, but that was our area. And there was a total of five of those. Uh, the the VC used to take rice from uh, Forcore or the Delta way south and run it through the Rungsat Special Zone um, this way, the, with the ships coming up the other way, and run it in, in sampams mm. uh, on up through there to feed the other VC or NVA in uh, three core. They take the rice like when we it's all logistics you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so we tried to prevent that and they also might uh, did mines mm-hmm. so my my buddy was the uh combat advisor mm-hmm. we were in the advisor hooch so we're in the middle of this little um our regional force base sure and they had regional forces, army kind of looking guys, and they, they are mounted to be uh, our, what we know as our, our state militia. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you call them here in town? Uh, National Guard. National Guard. Okay. And and so they're, you're not the force, but they've been educated. Uh-huh. C- combined with that military, the army guy, was uh, the Navy side of it. And they had small boats and all that kind of stuff, too. And the commander of the whole Rungsat Special Zone was a, a lieutenant commander or major type of old Vietnamese. And his counterpart was a Navy guy who was a, a commander uh, and our boss. Mm. And he was also the boss of the minesweepers and the helicopters and things like that. Check. And uh, so, at any rate... Uh, you know, this is kind of a neat situation for a guy getting groomed for war. Mm. It really is because you get all the little things, that are, all the little screw ups you can do. They don't cost you life at the because <laughs> you know, you're at least savvy. You know, you could be a bad situation, but you're pretty savvy about what to anticipate, what's the capability, when is it dangerous, when is it not dangerous. All those things you you own by the time you leave. Mm. Uh, but you don't own it in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the that's one of the reasons I want to talk about it because it seems like a like it would be smart, productive, successful uh, practice if I was able to go in or you were able to go into a, let's say Marja for ten months and watch the enemy and see the TTPs and watch people operate. You'd be way more lethal, squad leader, team leader, platoon leader uh-huh. on the next go around because you have that much time immersed into current TTPs and, and, and current actions. And so I dig that. So did you found that as a positive and uh, reinforcing oh, program, I assume? Or? You, don't, you don't wake up to that. Mm-hmm. You, you have it. it. It becomes part of you. Mm-hmm. And you don't say, oh, here's a light switch. I, I, no, but it becomes, you, all those lessons learned are embedded in your head sure. uh, and into your body. And 
psychic and all that kind of stuff. I, I will share one thing. Cliff Dunning was a stud. He was our, uh, he, I was a little senior to him. We we're both captains. I mean, we're talking six months. So all of a sudden I was in charge of this advisory team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, a master sergeant and we had uh, a corpsman and we had a PSYOPs uh, NCO and a communicator. And so, and we had an intel officer and the infantry guy, which is Cliff Dunning, and he's a short guy, right? Mm. Uh, but he, well, I forgot what it was in the Marine Corps. We have this, uh, uh, the best physically conditioned person in the on the base. Mm. I forget what it's called. There's an award they like give an out. Iron and, Man and or something like it's that. It's Iron Man. So he's got the, he won, just won the Iron Man award. So we're dealing with a real stud of a guy, even though he's like this. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't think we're there, and I got there just before him. I don't think we're there uh, a week when the first mortars started coming in, mm. you know, and you know how that is, like, oh my, this is this must be war. And they're coming in from outside the town, rice paddies, rice paddies, being shot from you know, however, 2,000 yards away or something mm-hmm. like that, and they're hitting the base, but then they make a lot of noise, so... We have a bunker outside our advisory team bunker. Cliff's already gone. I'm intel officer. And the, the three officers were together, and there was an enlisted troopers, the staff NCO kind of place too. And well, I'm busy trying to get into Cliff's shoe, which is a size eight or a size seven, and I'm a size ten and a half. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I spent the whole time during that mortar attack trying to get that. Finally, I'm hopping on out there. Motherfucker, motherfucker, what's going on? And they're all laughing their ass off because one of them got to get a flashlight. I said, Cliff, will you put your shoes on? Because I was on the, oh, never mind. Long story short, but those are the kind of lessons learned. And, and they're good. And you look back and you say, oh, my. Okay. You got to uh, take the good from it, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he, he put on go-aheads and they were slipped right on. Yeah. I didn't have any glories there. At any rate, um, go ahead. <laughs> Epic. No, that's awesome. It's those little things. Well, that's what I mean. You get smart. Yeah. You, you realize that your shoe's got to be here, and when you go to sleep, you you double check. Oh, yeah. And it wears double bed, a cot type of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. this was, and, and this was at, at the advisory location? Yeah. It's which was on where? That, yeah, Bay. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. And, and so you do that for? Um, a year. A year, mm-hmm. and then after that, you extend a volunteer to extend during that time. Yeah, uh, towards the okay during that some, time. Somewhere uh, my my changeover date was in June, I would say. So I would say right after Tet. So I would say in February. I must have been thinking about it in March. I did it. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, coming back in now. I want to uh, I want to transition now. I wanted to build up the context of this story the best that I could. And it seems that we've done that now, concluding with uh, the advisory role and, and and the wealth of knowledge gained in an advisory role. And so, Dave, you know, kicking back to it, um, before we get into battle lines, you, you run your time up with your advisory role. And then you said, you know, you, you kind of, 
uh, compared it with with being you know on the football field and standing on the sidelines and seeing what the enemy's doing, seeing what the other teams got to offer, and now you're chomping at the bit to say I didn't come all this way to learn all of this to not then go in and command yeah. this and do something about it. So um, touch on those emotions and then and then we'll kind of kick into the book uh, or those feelings that you got at that time. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know when I was thinking about this and my frustration. I realized uh, the danger of going north because there's a lot of, certainly a lot of activity at that time. It was the height of the war. Mm. Um, and I also realized it was putting my marriage in jeopardy, which really was not um, very strong anyhow. And my time I went, I came on active duty and down at Camp Lejeune, uh, she stayed up in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And then I went to school for doggone near five, six months or something like that. And then I was going right overseas. So you know, when you're separated for a long period of time, it's it's not the, the healthiest thing on a marriage. Um, and so um, that's you all know that. Um, but I realized that I needed personally to do this, and I didn't want to get out because you know I was going back to a half-ass marriage anyhow. So. Uh, I wanted to get myself taken care of and get a real check by my name, which is, I hate to say that was career motivated too, but there was the football theory, but uh, and get me in the game coach, but um, but also, uh, you know, a, a whole host of other things. I wanted to just help out where mm-hmm. I could. Mm-hmm. Read. So, yeah, I extended and all that kind of stuff. Is there something to be said about spending that, that amount of time on an advisory role in a war where a lot of people are getting are getting cut down that uh what, what did you build animosity or resentment like you wanted to go out and fight these people because of what you'd seen for the last 12 months or was it more I, of no not for me uh-uh. no no okay. because uh the vc we picked up were just typical 115 pound five foot four guys mm-hmm. and um uh, and there i had no animosity towards them there i wasn't in a lot of fights or anything like that then we might have had some guys get shrapnel it was not a heavy combat situation sure. even though in the runks that we did ambushes uh along the rivers you know where they were cut through and we try to uh shoot their their um sampams going filled with rice up going up north but uh, uh no i didn't mine was not in fact i love the vietnamese mm-hmm. uh, even and and there may be a photograph in that Battle Lines book there of me talking to a Vietnamese guy. We just captured him. And so mm-hmm. I could interview him about um, his family mm-hmm. and how long he's been here. And like all of the guys in our young guys in, in war, whether it's a Marine or not, once you're captured like this, if someone's really friendly to you, you know, those guys were starving. They had malaria, blah, 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 blah. And so... And, and I'm asking him about their family, and I could speak enough that he understood me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. He, he could tell I was not the enemy, like a Russian or something like that, uh, at, at that for that one particular fellow. So I had no personal hate for them uh, mm-hmm. or anything like that. Now, you know, uh, you guys are going to think it differently because you left Lejeune and you go to war. You have that mindset more aggressive and more... Uh, detrimental on on the for the for the enemy, where I did I had, I love the Vietnamese. I realized all this history when the French were there, 
And when the French got beaten at the Ambience <coughs> Fou up north there, and then they have the Geneva Accord, mm-hmm. which uh, has the 17th parallel, generally speaking, as the uh, DMZ, Demilitarized Zone, and it's about five, and that separates the two countries. Uh, those Vietnamese really like to be one. Mm-hmm. They, you know, this communist stuff with the Ho Chi Minh and all that kind of stuff, uh, they're not big champions of it. They're farmers, right? And they, they're proud, proud of their language and their history. Mm-hmm. And Vietnam as a whole, uh, and I, I can say this with assurance, um, they hated the Chinese. Back there in the days of um, Mao Zedong, no, Mao Zedong's the local, the current guy, but Gang of the Khan, uh, back there in the 1400s, 1500s, Vietnam, Vietnam was captured by the Chinese and occupied and put down. So for about two, 300 years, somewhere in that time frame. And they dislike the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So the, the Chinese were trying to buddy up with them. And Ho Chi Minh, who was a, a, a general, he, he in the 1920s, he had gone back to Moscow to learn about communism. So he comes back here. So he's now the liaison with China. But the bulk of the people didn't like China. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. Uh, and they wanted to have peace. And the bulk of people, north and south. People, and you, you know that when you're over in Afghanistan, those people didn't want to have a war in their country. The, the locals, I mean, you know, it was hurting their kids and it was hurting. Is growing poppies and whatever else is mm-hmm. he had going for himself and and so this is I'm I'm now I'm oh I don't know 27 or something like that I've been through all this stuff I know all that stuff I'm wise I'm not a I'm not coming in like a lance corporal mm-hmm. with you know just out of Paris Island by about six months or something like that <laughs> still shitting third phase yeah down. you got it <laughs> no I, I'm understanding these people and and I'm loving these people. Yeah. And so it, when I when we captured someone, we caught a, a, a bunch, even though they get wounded and stuff like that, and and they're belly aching like a trooper would belly ache if he's wounded. Um, so at any rate, you, know, you have to show compassion once they're out of the war. I think that's what. I think that's what makes. I used to tell the guys uh, when we were when we were about to do some spicy shit, like we're not we're. The thing that makes us different is that we can possess control over our emotions and our actions. We are we are not just going to go out and murder people. If we can capture people and form intelligence, that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that definitely during the invasion, my psychology and my mind was there is no chances. It does not matter. Everything is my guys first, and it stayed that way. But my psychology and maturity changed as I went. Just in that seven months, with I realized that there's a lot of these folks that are put between a rock and a hard place, and they have one or, or they have one choice to make between two horrible decisions. And like um, most prominently, like the night riders, the Taliban would ride in and snatch a family up, or snatch the kids up, or leave a message that says. Here's the IED. Here's a map of where we want to put it. And if you don't do it, we're going to rape and murder the rest of your family. And mm-hmm. you'll never get them back. Mm-hmm. And so, like, any admirable father is going to do whatever it takes to get and sure. safeguard his family. Yeah. Well, there you go. And any admirable Lance Corporal Marine is going to smoke that farmer when he starts digging the bomb in. Mm-hmm. And, in and so I wrote, I, I, in the book, I wrote uh, a little poem down because we watched a guy just, 
you know, the night letter came in one night, a couple nights later, we watched a farmer go out and he pink missed himself trying to put this bomb in. He has no clue what he's doing, but he had a night letter or a night rider drop a letter off. So his whole family's going to get schwack. And so these, are, and then you, you realize like, that's who I'm fighting. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times it's, it, it's really just, yeah. it's depressing because they are unlucky to be born in that region at mm-hmm. that time. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's the kids and the, and the kids always struck a, struck a, a place of, you know, in our hearts from giving them candy to giving them water yeah. to play with yeah. them. And you realize like after a time that this is just a bad situation and, and they didn't ask for it and they can't control it, but this is their reality. And then you kind of got to compartmentalize that and still to go on with your mission. Like, uh, <laughs> Like the cultural differences, yeah. like we talked last night about a lot that messed me up uh, in my head, at least uh, from over there, was not killing. I didn't have a problem killing the enemy. It does suck when collateral damage is involved, but the cultural differences on human life and the way that they structure their reality are are, are really sh- were shocking to me, mm-hmm. I, I would say. So, um, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we, we see it together on that on that side. The Lance Corporal doesn't. And so if... Uh, and should he? And shit, yeah. Not, because will that build hesitation, or will that build that that split second of thought in his in his mind, at his experience? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Ah uh, well, uh, it depends on if you're educating them. Then see again, I was 27 hmm. uh, or something, 20, almost 28 when I had it, and I've been in in country for a while. So I'm knowing that the newbie, <laughs> the guy's just coming to end. Again, we have. Not organizations. We have onesie twosies coming in, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and they're all replacements. Mm-hmm. So, spending time with them or telling the squad leaders, you know, here's what I hope you're telling them. Uh, we're going to be doing this, that, and the other thing, and but educate them about what we're doing and all that. List. You know, looking for squad leaders doing their thing, you know? mm-hmm, and yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, what does it mean? Uh, we'll get into it. I want to pl- I want to show right. this look real quick, guys. This is the book Battle Lines. I want to give you a close up right here. This is Dave's book uh, uh, that was composed. Uh, it covers five years of Vietnam. I am not going to go into all of it. I have some excer- excerpts that I'm going to read, and then I'll shift over to Dave and kind of get his uh, his emotions, his his opinions on them. Um, but please pick this up. That I don't. I don't even want to read all of it. It's so good. This is a page turner, 400 plus pages that I put couldn't put down, finished it in five days. Um, this uh, is a timeless work of what in the future, if we don't learn to be better to each other, is going to repeat itself. Uh, we could all hope for not, but we need we need to we need to definitely consult on that. So in in the book, the first passage that I'm going to go to um, is the Union Two operation, and I'm just going to read a few excerpts from it. Uh, to give the viewers an idea of the battle. And then following that, I want to kind of touch on some of the solemn uh, things that happened after after you have warriors go out and put it on the line and really, uh, really just get after it and do their job. It's recognized by the rest of the warrior community uh, from the top to the bottom, and that's something impressive. The notes that I had said uh, on this one say, <clears throat> the man on the ground gets support when he needs it. Um, I'm not building the context. I'm kind of jumping right in the middle, so you guys bear with me. Uh, contextually, you're going to have to pick the book and get that, get that context for yourself. But 12.05 hours, the first platoon marched off the high ground between Hill A and Hill B. Steady in their descent, they followed a path leading to the rice field. Uh, settled in the conclave between the hills. The rice paddy 
uh, at the rice paddy, the, the platoon turned 45 degrees towards the northwest to allow the second platoon to cross behind when it arrived at the field. The second platoon's descent proved tougher. They moved across the, the, the face of Hill B, the drop was 40 meters or so, into large boulders covered on the face. Despite the obstacle, in a matter of minutes, the squad led under Corporal Mac, uh, Mac McDonald reached the field. The second platoon's second squad under his leadership, corp, under the leadership of Corporal Ted Verena, had just started climbing over and around the large boulders and entering the face of the hill when the enemy opened up with AK-47 fire suddenly from their left. Amazingly, the fire originated from the same location from which first platoon had just passed. PFC Werner gasped from a painful sucking chest wound that he had received in the onslaught, cried out with what's left of the, uh, the air in his lungs and, and to the rest of his squad. They're in NVA uniforms. They're not VC. Instantly, along the southern edge of the rice field, 75 meters to the left, Lance Corporal Gobricht, am I, am I from? Go, Gobrick. Uh, spotted 10 to 15 NVA regulars covered, in, uh, covered with camouflage, which hid their khaki uniforms, running out of the trench line, through the bamboo tree line and into the rice paddy below. The enemy wore pith helmets with bamboo leaves stuck into them. PFC uh, uh, Private First Class Mills, one of Verona's squads, opened up on the backs of the NVA troops, further flushing them into the field. Corporal McDonald's squad, already in the field, and by this point, on the company's left flank, immediately turned and assaulted the enemy soldiers. Max's attacking squad consisting of Lance Corporal Art Bird, Private First Class Mike Candless, Lance Corporal Mike Hernandez, Private First Class Legier, uh, Private First Class Wayne's Coat, Corporal Tom uh, Searfoss, fired their weapons as they charged the enemy. The, uh, the Marines overpower, overpowered the unwitting group who were more interested in escaping than fighting. The bodies of the wounded and dead NVA scattered from the edge of the tree line 40 meters or so into the paddy. Hey, Sheely, tell Fox 6 that first squad just bagged 15 NVA in the paddy in the front of Hill A. Second Lieutenant Kelsey mentioned on the ra to, the, to the radio operator. With that, the last of second platoon began entering the dry uh, rice field to begin searching for fallen NVA soldiers. The soldiers appeared to be quite, uh, to be quite young. Heavy and their packs were filled with rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, and AK-47 ammunition, also 82-millimeter mortar rounds. By the time the entire second platoon was 50 meters into the rice paddy and had peeled off to the left, the company command group entered the scene. The rice paddy, now clearly visible to Graham, was 350 meters deep. It ran left to right about 450 meters across. The tree line directly in the front was obviously a hamlet of, is that Vinway? Vinway too? Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, close enough. Okay. Let's, let's leave it like that. <laughs> okay. I have to look at it first. Okay, Fox's objective. Along their left flank was the hedgerow of bamboo trees. On the right was another hedgerow of bamboo trees. But unlike the first, this one did not enclose the entire, entire field. This hedgerow stopped about 75 meters shy of the hamlet and exposed another six to 800 meters of rice field, somewhere close to where Delta was fighting. Graham recognized this in the company's huge vulnerability as he pressed down upon him like Atlas with the weight of the world on his shoulders. 1310 hours <clears throat> the pitching of the battle uh the the pitched battle up at delta company's area continued as fox moved forward cautiously delta's fight served as a gruesome omen for the men of 2-5 rounds strayed from delta company's engagement and flew overhead and landed in the rice field near the marines fox's unit leader shouted orders to stay down if you're not involved with the pow's despite despite the the dangerous and, and sporadic small arms 
from Keene, the Kent Carson scout, he wounded up near the first platoon's position. His eyes studied the rice field. Slowly and methodically, he scanned back and forth as though he was looking for something lost. Raising his weapon, he pointed the muzzle at the ground 30 or 40 meters ahead of him. Lance Corporal Gobrich uh, observed the scout and mentioned that it, uh, mentioned and motioned his gun to his team leader, Corporal Rick Barnes. Hey, Rick, he whispered, look at the VN over there behind 1st Platoon. Rick had no sooner turned around as he witnessed uh, Keane fire six rounds without hesitation into the field. Severed straw flew into the air as the rounds impacted near the ground. Keane moved purposefully towards the impact area and fired three more rounds. Gobatruck headed over towards the scout. Now he too spotted another path of recently cut grass. Carefully approached it. It was a spider trap. He peered at it intently and then opened up with a short burst uh, from his tracer-filled M16 magazine. He and Barnes crept up to it. Barnes nudged the grass that covered the spider trap, hiding uh, that covered the spider trap hiding place with his M16 and found two dead in VA. At 13.50 hours, the company began its track across the, right, the rice field. The first and second platoons were in line with each of the two squads forward. The Marines radioed, uh, readied themselves for resistance as they grew closer and closer to the line of bamboo trees, masking Vin Way 2, their ultimate objective. Due to the shape of the rice paddy on the left, the second platoon neared the tree line for 200 meters away, while first platoon perhaps 250 meters from it, approaching from the right. 1420, the heat of the tropical summer afternoon, the NVA initiated their attack with unrelenting bursts of machine gun fire from the tree line that stood directly in front of 1st Platoon. Another machine gun fired from an area with a small pagoda, uh, pagoda located in front of 2nd Platoon. Within a millisecond, 50 to 100 automatic and semi-automatic arms were unleashed upon them from the bounding hedgerows in front. A machine gun and two automatic weapons in Hill, Hill B fired uh, fired from behind. B-40 rockets roared feet above the paddies, impacting on the far side. Another 51 caliber, caliber and NVA machine gun located on Hill A opened up 20 seconds later. Mercilessly, mercilessly, it fired into the backs of 2nd Platoon. A torrent of 82mm mortars rained down on the race field and trapped the Marines. The enemy machine gun at Venway 2 area had a low angle of fire that failed to impact the paddies. Instead, grazed the grasses 20 to 30 inches above it. The machine gun on Hill A, however, fired, plung fired at a plunging angle, spraying bullets down upon the field and they had trapped company. Through the wall of lead, <clears throat> the men of 2nd Platoon instinctively launched their final assault attempting to gain superiority. Lance Corporal Gobatruck marveled at Corporal Jerry Westfall, the squad leader on his left, who charged the machine gun, the sh the machine gun bunker with his M16 at the hip while making a wild charging yell. Racing forward, Gobchart glanced towards the uh, grant, glanced right towards the infantry squad. Firing men dropped. Uh, firing men dropped even as they ran. He glanced left. Westfall had been cut down. Large holes opened up in their line. The brave men of Second Platoon, no longer able to sustain the assault, one by one dove belly down and hit the paddy as they continued firing. The deafening snap of the bullets in the air above them. The NVA mowed down both the first and second platoons. Many made it to the prone position without being wounded. Some did not. The dead were still. The mortally wounded lay helpless, dying in the rice field. The slightly wounded remained frozen, calling out to see, their, see if their buddies were still alive. Only a two-foot dike and a poor angle provided cover, from the, uh, provided safety from the deadly guns. The killed and wounded littered the field, and Second Lieutenant Schultz, First Platoon Commander, lay mortally wounded. 
Short's platoon radio operator, Corporal Lloyd Woods, realized that his lieutenant was exposed to enemy gunfire and jumping up, made a mad rush through the splattering lead projectiles to reach him. Once there, he hoisted the lieutenant on his shoulders and lumbered both of them back to a safe position behind the dikes. Then, rallying his four companions, Woods sprinted across the open rice paddy, attempting to evacuate another Marine he saw laying near an enemy machine gun. When he reached a wounded man, Woods realized that moving him would be impossible because of the enemy fire. Ignoring the spurt of inaccurate machine gun rounds, the corporal crashed through the tree line towards the enemy. The gunner, in total, all at Woods' reckless aggressiveness, failed to shoot the charging Marine. Woods fired his M16 until he was out of bullets, killing the stunned NVA. He picked up the NVA machine gun and leapt into an adjacent emplacement, taking out a second gunner, using the enemy gun on the other hostile position. He provided cover for his companions and allowed for the other Marines to evacuate their wounded men. Corporal Woods wasted no time returning to the field where Fox's wounded lay, organize, lay to organize the evacuation. And if you can just give me your your thought your give me your thoughts on a firefight like this, where the worst possible. Uh, uh, situation begins to unfold and you've got grazing fire and you've got plunging fire and what what is it about leaders that uh when confronted with with such a catastrophic adversity uh gives them the gumption let's say to organize men and continue to fight in a situation like that that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was uh uh Captain uh, Graham, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, he was a magnificent leader. And I always consider myself to be an average bloke, but he was a, a fellow that was, many thought, would rise up to be a general officer. Uh, he had the long-term, before he took over Fox, he had a long-term things of accomplishments, ranger school and maybe uh, six years in the uh, reserves in the National Guard, blah, 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 blah. Um, he, he stayed by himself. Uh, I'm not that person at all. Um, and certainly well-written, but let me compliment my daughter for using all the good words. And, and it will, uh, I have to tell you a little bit more about how we wrote that section. Sure, sure. Please. Uh, at some particular point. But uh, let me talk about Graham for a section. Um, when, when Graham got... Okay, wait a minute. Uh, let's, hold a, let's hold a piece of paper, uh, eight, 8 by 11 and a half, 8 and a half by 11, sideways, and then realize that the company was coming down on the left-hand side. Now, on covering us, it's like a lake with the woods all around it with a couple little hills in the middle. It bumps, not, a, not hills, but a bump uh, where, where there was a, mm, a chapel of some sort and all mm, that kind of stuff. Mm. The bad guys were all the way at the, far, the top part of the, of the piece of paper that I'm holding right here, mm. but on, across this rice field. Uh, uh, okay, so Union 2, you know, in Union 2, we lost... Um, um, Fox did lost uh, thirty killed and had sixty one wounded. Uh, and so when you're me, a company commander who follows a really a great guy, um, 
I have to ask myself all the time I'm writing it and talking to these guys, how would I have done it better to prevent that? I mean, mm, it's just mm. begging that, that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, con- well, I ha- me backing up, they got to the edge of the bottom of the paper here, the edge of this large rice paddy, which was, what did he say? It was, we defined a 300 Six. mile across. It was 300, like, but then there was the line and then another 300, I think. Or yeah, something. it was a big, big, big rice paddy. And when they got to the first edge here of the rice paddy, uh, Graham wanted to prep mm-hmm. the area mm-hmm. and the, um, the, and the Fox company was then, um, attached to what was taken away from two five and yes, was sir. attached to one five i think it was one five and um so he asked for prep fires mm-hmm. and he got shot down because they've already done that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well okay depending on how adamant that person is i i encountered something like that that possibly you'll ask me later on or mm-hmm. i know you will um so Dave <laughs> would have blown off, given the flip the finger to the, the, the new battalion commander who's not going to write your fitness report anyhow. And I cared about the troops. Graham is a, a true military professional and obeying commands. Mm-hmm. I would have flanked it. Mm-hmm. As, I write, as I write it, in hindsight, it's like how would you have done that last play of a football game? Would you have run it or thrown it or Hail Mary or whatever? For sure. That type of thing. We can all analyze it. So I was analyzing something a better person than me, to me uh, as far as a company commander was concerned. I didn't know Gra- uh, Graham at all. Um, how would I have done it? I would have flanked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have maneuvered um, at least a platoon uh, in that, so I had flanking fire on that open patty if I had to cross it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you'd have to make sure you win this area over here, and then you could come in the far area on the far side. See, uh, how simple is it now after I know what they've been through, uh, and I would have done it. So all this goes through my brain. What was the reason they wouldn't give them fire? Was it just simply they had done it they before? They had done it before. They had done it before. You get. I'm not saying anything about. I mean, all, all I know is what happened. So sure. it's easy to say what a stupid guy. Jesus Christ! You got send a couple jets in there. Who cares? Mm-hmm. They get them anyhow. You got artillery in the world. They could just hit it. What are they talking about? Uh, I, no, we can't get into that because Graham's dead. And his radio operator's alive, and he's still very much involved with the Fox Company sure. alumni. But that's what happened. No, it's not on the guys. It's it's just one of those things where, when I don't understand, uh, even to even to this day, to my words, like why are we caring about bombs, money? I don't think it was money. I I I never did get the reasoning. Okay, mm-hmm. perhaps. And this, this was multiple I, multiple times in your book from multiple commanders faced this same yeah where I turned the them same down mission. and I said up yours man that's uh, like with the helicopter pilots not wanting to land from you later and we'll yeah, talk same, about it but yeah it's like, that's, that's the same thing how I do things the way I think is best uh, and now now the next issue I got when you're talking about uh, writing this oh it reads so nice doesn't it it reads like it's a big story well. You, if you get a, a monthly sit rep 
which every S3 in the battalion has to write. Mm-hmm. And we, I had to get, you know, I asked for all the two fives when we were writing this. So I had 60 out. But then I had to get one five on a couple occasions, too, because they wrote up the other battles. Um, and if you get that, you get three to five lines, and you just read two or three pages, and you got a lot more to read on, on, mm-hmm. on this one. So we got all, Tiffany and I, uh, we were in, in uh, Reno. Mm-hmm. That's where they had that reunion. And I said, Tiff, we got to get everybody together. So we get the guys, two sets of people. Well, two sets of interviews. One is for Union 2, and one is for Way City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get the guys to come in and shoot in the bull. Like, you guys are listening right now. Only, only we were up front, and they were sure. sitting like that. Well, we're getting, these, we're getting these stories, and nobody seemed to... There was no continuity here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. is it, reading this, it seems like, oh, man, everybody knew what we were doing. Everybody was doing They didn't. Because these two foot high, dry rice patties, if you didn't want to get your head shot, you'd stay down. Yeah. And if you put your head up just a little bit, you got to hold it. Okay? That type of thing. So the guys over on this side had no idea what the guys over on this side was going through. Mm -hmm. Because there's a big rice paddy dike thing in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so the squads were displaced like this. So pulling this all together was in itself. That's how difficult it was in the war when they're shooting at you and you don't know whether you should go further or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that hard to just tr- take their stories f- uh, f- when they're sitting next to each other in, the, in this... Uh, and re- synthesize and, them. Yeah, yeah. and they're reading them and he says, well, I, I don't know what you guys were doing and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, of course, I was not I was still an advisor at that point. Mm-hmm. 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 So, at any rate, so... Now, as an advisor, are you getting these reports of these bigger battles or no? No. No. Well, uh, it'd be like reading the newspaper or something like that. Hell, they're having a hell of a fight up there. It's called Union 2. Hey, gotcha. Um, Going back to the book now, I'm not going to read this all. You guys got to pick the book up to to get every detail that's in it. But following Union 2, my next part is when Colonel, is, is it Hewton or... Oh, well, Houghton. Houghton, I'm sorry. So Colonel Houghton. Kenny Houghton. He, a big, he was a big hero during World War II. And um, a great regimental commander. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And he says some words uh, here, and we'll go to the book now. Uh, Colonel Houghton, who had asked for 2-5's most aggressive company, flew in at first, first light. This is following Union 2, and I did skip... Several pages that gets in. Dave and, and Tiffany really get into the details of how Union Two unfolded, and, and, it, and ended it was up, rough. yeah, yeah, ended up positive. I mean, they won. No, they they did work, but it was a tough fight. Yeah, it was a it tough was fight very, for yeah, Fox, yeah, and so. Yeah. Going to the book, Colonel Houghton, who asked for Two Five's most aggressive company, flew in at first light to see Fox's few survivors. Most had been wounded, but not evacuated. To those who were left, he said, Marines, I put Fox into the center of the breach and your company was the linchpin in defeating the enemy regiment. I had always heard of your fighting ability, your braveness. Today, you exceeded your reputation. You men exemplify the heroic character of the 5th Marine Regiment in the United States Marine Corps. With you, I mourn your losses. We can never bring them back. They were brave Marines who did not die in vain. 
Men of Foxtrot, I salute you and your magnificent fighting company. The colonel gave a hand salute while turning to ensure every Marine and corpsman had been recognized. Houghton paused for and pulled Lee Green. Is it Marengo or Marengo? Tony Marengo. Marengo. Yeah, he's big. And he's a retired sergeant major. Where I, I get an email from him every day. How about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So he says... Mostly uh, jokes. Houghton paused and pulled <laughs> Lee, Green, and Marengo aside for a few minutes to give them personal praise before flying away to recognize the others. In the end, Alpha Company killed 30 enemy with another probably, uh, probably killed thir- uh, 33 killed. They captured 27 NVA. Alpha lost set, uh, five Marines and killed... Uh, killed killed with 10 wounded delta company killed 40 enemy with another 50 approximated delta's losses were 17 killed and 22 wounded fox company had 170 confirmed kills and another 310 probable killed fox lost uh, fox lost 30 men killed and sustained 61 wounded many men attached to fox company during the battle were killed and wounded as well and that, that, that's just something else um what I guess what struck me is is the command, uh, the commander to come out and, and make that trip and look at those men in the eyes and be with them. It, that's a, that's a testament to his character as a leader, in my opinion, and and that's huge. That, that's a huge thing, and and it and it carries a lot of weight, in my opinion, at least for us when we got, you know, similar similar instances happened with us. It it really. Uh, fueled let's say that a spirit of core and that camaraderie with the fighting men in our company and i'm sure it did the same same for them so uh, what's your thoughts on on that evolution or, or that decision from that commander uh way city hasn't happened yet so this is prior to way city um and kenny houghton was a hero as a probably uh World War II, I would guess. Uh, he might have been the company commander or lieutenant, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he got Navy Cross or sure or something like that. But um, uh, one five was going to go into this battle along with some other battalion or regiment. So it was part of the 5th Marines minus and 7th Marines minus. Mm-hmm. And so the one five commander needed another company. Um, so they went to two five and asked for a company and we want your best company. It was one of those type of things. And that's how Fox got me got put into the breach there that mm-hmm. he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so because it was the best company there and then now, uh, you know, uh, general Houghton, uh, he was a general and the three star, but, um, Colonel Houghton then, um, had 12 companies, uh, and Fox was one of them. So it's not that there's not, he would know Fox company anyhow. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so he knew to take that. So you, you, you pluck your best guy, and you put him in a, a grinder there, and they get the ship beat at him, but they did win and chase the en- enemy away. They, and that was the end of Union, too, uh, mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they did clean up. And stuff like that. So, uh, what did I think about Houghton going there? I I think it's the proper thing to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, wouldn't you? (laughs) I would. (laughs) I would. It's. It's. I know that all of them don't though. And so on, on on the times where I see where I feel like it was done right, I like to try to. Oh yeah. I like to try to highlight that. 
Well, he he says a World War II guy. You know, you all those islands and things like that. You, you got to go. <laughs> you got to be there. And, and, and you're. It's not if you were uh, some some person who was never engaging uh, and always hanging in the ship in World War II or something like that. Mm-hmm. It would be more logical to stay behind. <laughs> for sure. But for a fighter, you want to get up there and point to the guy and say, "You did it! Damn yep. it!" Yep, absolutely, and carries a lot of weight with it. Yep. Uh, the next chapter is uh, Nong Song. I'm not going to read the full thing, but the notes that I have say, Welcome home uh, to Anwa, uh, the silent salute. So um, we'll, just, we'll just pick it up right there. It's not that, not that much. So following Union 2, Fox Company's resolve had weakened and its moral uh, fiber grew, fa- grew frail. Over 90 Marines from Fox Company had been either killed or wounded. Of the 64 others, many didn't report small wounds. Nevertheless, the battle had taken its toll on even those who had not been a casualty. Fox Company would have to rebuild. The reconstruction began the very next day. First Lieutenant James B. Scourish was assigned to Fox uh, was assigned to command Fox Company on the basis of his combat experience with Fox. Scourish had been the third platoon commander and the company executive officer until he was wounded for the second time in late March. During that period. He had, earned, he had earned two Silver Star medals for gallantry in combat. After March, he acted as the battalion's logistics officer. Scars joined the company on the battlefield 28 kilometers southwest of Anwa. The job seemed insurmountable. He was replacing one of the finest infantry captains in the Marine Corps, a man who had, on the previous day, sacrificed his own life for his men. Short, at five foot eight. And, and uh, prematurely bald, Scars did not possess Graham's classic commanding presence. Yet the men knew and respected him as a, as a no-nonsense, tough Marine Corps leader who had been deeply devoted to their well-being. For them, he possessed everything that mattered. It was a relief to the men that Graham's replacement was a commander with the history in Fox. Flying in with Scars was Sergeant Richard Pappy Pinnell. He was weapons company, or he was weapons platoon commander. Sergeant Pinnell had joined Fox Company in late May, but had not gone to, into the field. He remained back at the base, working on acclimating to the tropical heat, familiarizing himself with the use of personal weapons and becoming otherwise indoctrinated in the war. With six years in the Corps, Pinnell carried the hardened physique of a gra- and gravelly voice of a non-commissioned officer, uh, officer coming, most recently off the Paris Island drill field. Without knowing any of the specifics in his background, his voice garnered immediate respect from his peers and his seniors. His time spent in charge of the troops was instantly obvious. For the troops, however, his voice reminded them of their own DI. Even though they hadn't seen that drill instructor in the last three to ten months, immediately it commanded their full attention. As a helicopter landed the mid-morning of 3 July on the sacred soil of the Union II battlefield, Scarus and Pinnell began processing the full effect of the violence that took place the day before. Smoldering trees and other shredded vegetation told part of the tale. All else proved overwhelming. Troops scattered throughout the hundred, the thousand meter square, dry rice paddy, silently placed their former compatriots or whatever parts of them they could find into body bags and searched for weapons and equipment. Before all the equipment could be collected, helicopters arrived at 1400 to lift Fox Company survivors back to Anwa. The men's minds remained locked on the battlefield so no one anticipated a reception as they landed at the airstrip. <clears throat> Over 100 Marines and corpsmen of Echo Company, Hotel Company, and the supporting elements gathered around the landing of the choppers. Silence greeted them. The muted salute bespoke of pro- profound respect. 
most sincere admiration and love for fellow uh, for their fellow Marine as the men of Anwan uh, Anwa welcome back the heroes. And that's got to be that's got to be a sight. You know, you're you're you got the shit beat out of you. Most of your company's down. You're hurting. A lot of you are wounded. And then you know to see that that's that's got to be something else. Yeah, oh, yeah, that yeah. was that, um, there was a lot to that one. There is indeed, uh, and it gives you recall we were talking about the size of the rifle companies, and the average size was about 120 out there in the field, and uh, that didn't mean we have a whole bunch in the rear either. Mm-hmm. But that's all we had, mm-hmm. and um, so when 90 get wounded or killed, uh, there ain't many that are coming in on the helicopters, mm-hmm. and uh, those guys had just uh, uh, been out there with body bags. And it was a very uh, traumatic experience mm-hmm. for the survivors and the, the replacement guys that came in. There were replacement guys coming in. And there, I, I can remember one of our reunions, one of the guys said, if I had to pack another damn body in a bag, I think I'd just crack up, shoot myself. Uh, but they're, they're packing all their buddies in a, ba- a body bag. Um, and uh, how many? You know, 30 of them. Mm-hmm. And so they're scattered all over. Uh, among the... The NVA de- dead too, so you're really walking in a, in a probably 100, 150 guys. <laughs> Turn them over to see if they're Marines. Um, yes, yeah, so it, it was pretty bad, and so um, the mindset of those fellows that were coming off was not very high at mm-hmm. that at mm-hmm. that time, and you have to rebuild from scratch. And and all that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just a, such a different dynamic than what you know than what is faced today, and, and how how things are how things are handled today with our war. Of course, we're not losing the same numbers, and we don't have the same number of combat replacements coming in. But that dynamic of having more, sometimes more new guys than guys that you're even familiar with, has got to be you know that's got to be a challenge in itself. Yeah, um, especially with fighting because. You know, once so, your okay, elements hey, shattered. I'll tell you something. Now, I, again, I read your book, and you read my book, and <laughs> I'm a company commander. I'm thinking at that level, and you're thinking at the squad level. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so so, so, so <laughs> it, it, it's um, a little different analysis, and um, y- you can build on that. Mm. In other words, you lost your, your former commanding officer, and he ends up getting a Medal of Honor. And you lost uh, Gunny Green still there, and you got a couple other lieutenants coming in and stuff like that. You and it doesn't matter if if you were coming in, you were coming in. Man. I could easily we could do that. We're going to build on this successes and the, the losses. Mm-hmm. We're going to start from there because we we're told we were the best. So even though you're new, you, you, I can convince you you're the best for sure. Yep, and, and sure. you'd sign up for it. You want to? Say, you believe it or you don't believe? Oh, I believe it. Yeah, okay, yeah, good. Well, we'll think that way. You mm-hmm. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking at my, at my level, and not just trying to get the, the guys and making sure that they have their shoe shine or bunks put away or something like that, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Uh, but it's a it's a burden that has to be placed on coming now. I don't think you highlighted, but. When I took over Fox Company, and that was in uh, about July mm-hmm. of '68, uh, uh, um, we had a few left over from Way City, and we had 
mostly other replacement guys. And Fox, had, the day before, Fox lost a lot. Mm-hmm. And I can see them. And you know when you're looking at a guy who's kind of squared away, even though he's been there, and, and guys who are not squared away, you're kind of s- suspicious that they're not gonna, they're not up to the speed you want because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't win, win battles if you don't have the, the meanest dog and the sharpest dog in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you probably read it in there in the book, but uh, the first thing I did was we left Anois. We were on the main service road there, which was a two lane mud road type mm-hmm, of thing, mm-hmm. and and I sped marched them out uh, about three miles, and we did some training there. And then I sped march them out, and they were strung out on the way back, oh, like uh, 500 yards. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I told the gunny, I said, listen, you see what I got here? Well, I, don't, I don't want you to, and he was a Way City guy too, and I don't want this to happen again. You get those guys in shape, and you square them away. That's it. Left. Yeah. It is an NCO problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's not my problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be doing other things. But I'm telling you, he's got a problem, and I'm counting on him to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's all he can say is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes, sir, yes, sir, and things like that. But then we we're all working on the same problem, yep. uh, how to make that better. Squared away, you know, it's the ABCs of being a Marine. You'd be squared away, first in line. You're being early. You're looking at sharp and all that kind of stuff. You don't look messy or anything like that. So, um, um this is what happens when you're coming in and you get uh, Scurious there. Is this, that's how you pronounce it, Jim Scurious. Oh, I'm sorry about that. And he passed away uh, already. He'd been to our several reunions. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some funny stories. He was a, a lieutenant at one time. Uh, For this, right? Or I, not? I, in there. I, it's either he or somebody else. Uh, I'd have to, it's, it's in there. Nah, it's probably someone else. Never mind. I'm, I'm not going to wander in my, my mind without looking in the book. So, yeah, anyway, he he came in and he obviously could, carried on mm-hmm, and that type mm-hmm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, that, that was probably in 67 or something like that. Uh, when was that battle of... This? Just before Way, right? No, no, worked no, up no Way was, City was 68. Uh, there's nothing in 64. They got there in 66, I think, yeah, 66. So um, 67 is what we're looking at here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was late '67. Yeah. Yeah, '67 is the date. Coming and then up. after that, they go up, up to uh, up to the uh, some kind of mines, <laughs> the coal mines or something like that. Um, Rock crusher. Yeah. 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 So, so what I got? Uh, what the the next place? So I want to take a take a pause and just kind of talk about this. As a Marine, when you put your foots on the uh, yellow footprints, uh, you know, at one of the recruit depots. Uh, your life changes. You're indoctrinated into that of the Marine Corps and of Marine Corps history and folklore and, and the things, uh, 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 the Marines that came before you that proved your name, let's say, and you learn about them. And Way City Marines are one of the, one of the stories that you're told from the very beginning, the house-to-house fighting and rooftop-to-rooftop. And until I read your book, I didn't understand the gravity of Way City. Uh-huh. The, the job that you did, and I'm not going to cover it all. I will give you guys a, you know, a, a brief snippet of a couple of pages here that kind of illustrate the fight that was uh, 
Way City, but even as a Marine, hearing the folklore and hearing the traditions and hearing the stories, until I read this account, I did not know what Way City was. I did not know the size. I didn't, like, as far as, you know, how not big or big you would consider it in that area. Uh, I didn't realize the amount of firepower, I suppose, that was rained down on people and the loss that was taken. And so we'll get into the book here, but this is a portion on Way City. Um, following this, we'll bring you in. I do have the part where you take over the platoon and we'll talk about, or the company, and we'll talk about, you know, the same words. But into the book right now in the Way City, uh, 1,600 hours. The men nodded and steadied themselves. Gasparini and Campbell slid into their corner facing Tran Cow uh, Bond Street. Smitty's point man dashed across the intersection to the left side of the street and clung to the side of the home. These jungle and rice paddy marines quickly surveyed the asphalt street lined with, the curbs, uh, lined with curbs and large shade trees. Immediately on the right side of the wall, ranging uh, from three feet to five feet high, were used to delineate small Vietnamese property. A 10-foot wide sidewalk separated the trees from the walls. The beginning of the large building complexes that visually continued for 100 meters led Smith, uh, line Smitty's left side of the street, 60 meters from the intersection. The men would soon know this property as the, is that Jean d'Arc High School? Uh, Jean, Jean d'Arc. Uh, Jean d'Arc High School, okay. The squads had crept more than, the squads had crept more than 60 meters into the empty, empty street when a hail of automatic weapons fire greeted them. Rounds ricocheted off the streets, walls, and buildings. Gasparini fell down behind a tree wounded. Campbell dove under uh, over another small wall for cover. NVA rounds continued to pour into the courtyard walls. These men, these men answered the well-hidden snipers by firing blindly back in their general direction. Brown pressed again to the back of one of the large trees, yelled, Cece, you okay? Yeah. Jim Goslin, the platoon corpsman, having heard Gasparini was wounded, ran forward. The NVA strafed the right side of the street, killing him instantly. Private Stanley Murdoch, Brown's new radio operator, went down at the same time. Sergeant Smaley took a round to his leg and fell, needing assistance before he could move again. Brown cried out for the rest of the squad to lay down a base of fire in order to rescue the wounded Gasparini and Campbell. Any rescue attempt seemed hopeless. With no radio available for Brown, Horner and Brown communicated on the street. Lieutenant, this isn't logical. We have to get the wounded, Brown shouted. You get back up there with the lead fire team. All right, sir. And with that, Brown raced down the street and his helmet flying off of his head, rounds bouncing off the pavement at his feet, and he dove over the wall to reach Campbell. Two more men were wounded watching Brown, watching Brown's back while he made his mad dash. Downs, radio, uh, Downs radioed Horner, urging him to move the platoon forward. Figaro Perez, his Dear John letter, long forgotten, cut through the center of the block, through his small homes, fences, and the backyards, and attempt to reach Campbell from a different direction. From a neighboring yard, Figueroa Perez shouted, Brown, you over there? Yeah, Brown answered. Don't come over here. We're pinned down. Figueroa Perez ignored the warning from his best friend, thinking only of making a rescue attempt as he left o leapt over the wall. A shot rang out, hitting him through the head, where he fell, uh, where he fell mortally wounded. Brown heard the chaplain's words in his head and thought, yeah, a mysterious ways. The rounds making Brown's squad an easy target were coming from the high school. Across the street, sliding along the, the school wall, Smitty and Della Riva Vera 
were making better progress. They had actually snuck halfway down the hall, the high school uh, wall, and were about to come under sniper fire. However, without the mutual support of Brown's pinned down squad, they were halted in position. At Downs' direction, Horder and Smitty attempted to come up with a different strategy at the end of the enemy's grip on the street. They broke into a house on Smitty's side of the street and determined that they could break through the interior walls and attack the enemy from inside instead of on the street. Their infantry weapons were useless. At 1725 hours, the light gray clouds began to darken. Horner radioed the results to Downs. Skipper, we're not making any progress. Browns has almost lost all of his men. All afternoon, Captain Downs had, sat, uh, had steadfastly drove his men in a comp- to accomplish their mission. Now, torn between the inability to accomplish the mission and the need to care for his men, Captain Downs swore under his breath. Soon, the caring portion of his psyche respond, uh, responded, All right, let's work it and get the men out of there. Out of nowhere, two M48 tanks crushed around the corner. Horner darted over to the lead tank, determined to relieve his casualties. He was focused on saving his men. Corporal Dave Collins, his radio operator, high, uh, hightailed it with him. Horner opened the radio box at the rear of the tank. It didn't work. Collins climbed aboard the tank, asking for their freight. He turned off the he turned off the company frequency in, in the radio and the tank commander and radioed the tank commander. After Horner sent his men to recover Smelly and Murdoch, uh, Smelly and Mur- Murdoch, both tanks began cranking forward together, forming a shield across the street, with Horner and Collins in trace. Horner put the right tank in lead. Move three meters up, stop. Left tank, move three meters up, stop. Three meters. The tanks provided the new uh, provided a new threat. B forty anti tank rockets now exploded off the tanks' armor, widely spraying shrapnel all over the merger uh, per- uh, on the mer- on the meager protection being used by the men that were trapped in squads. In the first B forty salvo, Horner was hit hit on the left hand on the arm side. He bled profusely, but not enough to stop him in the rescue mission. Horner bellowed out the Smitty squad on the left to fall behind the tanks. Collins, who had reluctantly left Brown's squad to become Horner's radio operator after Horner lost his operator, caught caught the spirit of being a go-get-em grunt, again yelled over to, uh, to Brown's trapped men. We're coming! Deafening the sounds of the battle raging on the street, rounds ricocheting off the pavement, rockets exploding off the tank, and men shouting to and fro drowned out everything else, uh, everything else for the men of Fox. Holding the radio handset while talking to the tanker, Horner was staring into the eyes of Colin when a sniper's round passed through Colin's neck. Killed instantly, he fell onto the street off the tank's protective shield. Lance Corporal Jimmy Palmo, witnessing his buddy's death, dashed over to the tank. Looking at the lieutenant, looking at the lieutenant, Palmo said, I'll take the radio. Together, they pulled Colin's fallen body and stripped off his Prick, one, his prick 25 radio. 20 meters passed. The armor shield had collected eight Marines from the 2nd Platoon. Two were walking wounded. Private First Class Henshell's body was placed on the tank's hull. The street darkened at night pro- as night approached, impeding the vision of the snipers and the enemy rocket men. Soon the Ford men and Smitty's squad had, had been collected. Smitty told Horner and Private First Class Delavera, uh, Vera, who had been laying in the street motionless for over an hour, wa- uh, was also for- forward of them. Pinned into their flattened positions on the street, Brown and Campbell lay low. Rounds zinged over their heads on regular intervals, missing them by mere inches. As the minutes passed and light faded, the attacks lessened. Campbell shrugged himself even lower. He twisted his body until he was able to reach his pack of cigarettes from his pants pocket. Campbell slid his hand in, carrying the nearly fully pack over his chest. He shook the cigarette out of the pack, squeezed it with his fingers, and slithered it between his lips. 
Campbell repeated the process to retrieve the lighter from his other pocket. He peered sideways at Brown, who had used his peripheral vision to watch the entire process. Campbell hesitated before lighting the cigarette. Every Marine knew you didn't light a match or lighter, least give away your position. Both men cringed and squeezed their eyes shut as concrete bits and dust sprayed around them. Bullets trapped them in the prone position as the snipers continued to chirp away at the three-foot wall behind, they, they were behind. Campbell offered to Brown a lopsided smile, cigarette flopping between his lips. I guess it's not like they don't already know our position, he said. <laughs> Brown uh, responded with a small chuckle. Guess not. Campbell took his time, lit the cigarette, and savored the first long drag. He tossed the, back, uh, he tossed the pack onto Brown, who tapped another cigarette out, eventually getting it to stick in his mouth. After Brown's was lit, Campbell stuffed the cigarettes and lighter back into his pants. In the distance, they heard the approach of tanks. They could hear the shouts of fellow Marines. Fall behind the tanks. We're coming. Hold on. Brown, Brown braved a peek over the wall, stretching his spine until his neck, and his neck and, until he was almost doing a horizontal hands, uh, headstand. He released his position and fell back into place as another round buzzed around him, missing him by the smallest margin. Campbell and Brown knew they would have to run for it even, it, uh, even though the enemy had their positions made. Not yet, he breathed. You know what I heard, man? Campbell asked. What? Brown asked. It was one of those classes we had to take about smoking, remember? Campbell continued. Yeah, something about Marines and pot, Brown, re Brown responded. But they also said something about cigarettes, Campbell shrugged, flipping his hand and that held the cigarette uh, towards Brown. They said, according to the Surgeon General, these things can kill you. Nah, Brown st uh, not stated. Cigarettes? Yeah, Campbell, uh, Campbell hurried. The doc uh, recommended we quit smoking them. Brown's ears perked perked as the tank got closer why he asked prepping himself to jump and run seems they don't want us dying to anything dangerous campbell laughed flicking the remains of his cigarette aside no kidding brown said and you thought the corps didn't care campbell accused yeah campbell <laughs> go brown shouted with that campbell led and the men hurtled themselves over the ground and uh, over the protective wall bullets impacted all around them as they sprinted towards the tanks Pieces of the street kicked up at him, but Brown and Campbell reached the safety of the armor shield. Gasparini joined, the, joined them, and all living Marines were collected. The dead were placed on tank holes. Weapons and equipment were retrieved. And then it continues on in the book in, in, uh, in very good detail, the, the, you know, the, the Way City battle as it was uh, from, uh, you know, when they said house to house and street to street, you have an idea and then when you read this you realize they're having to use rockets to blow holes in walls because every other entrance you know was co covered dynamically with an entrenched in weapon and and several people waiting and that is a fight that is a fight yeah i know um it's helpful the book has a, a street map yes in there and it's helpful to see how uh when we describe it how how small it is there's a there's a pavement on either side but the street's only you know two cars wide and on the i want to say on the, as they were moving forward the the mac v compound was behind there that's a military assistance mm -hmm. yep. training command uh it was behind there and so they went in that they went around the corner that's when everything happened but as they got around the corner and, and to go down that street, the on on the left hand side was a one or it was a two or three story uh, 
university was a university of way city mm-hmm. was over there so those guys had all these windows and bricks and stuff like that are to shoot at these marines coming down down the street um the other note is rich horner the lieutenant mm-hmm. was there do you recall when i was talking about one one battle in uh union two where they were in the rice paddies and all that okay next guys Next day, then Tiffany and I are talking to the Way City guys, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a completely different environment, but we have to kind of understand what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. So we have a good twenty guys there, I would imagine. Um, and Downs comes in now. When the general comes in, he was the company commander. I mean, he still goes by Sir. I go by <laughs> Dave. Uh, there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, nobody calls him Mike. Uh, maybe one or two months, but it's a difference. Um, so these guys are telling a story, and we're recording it and taking notes sure. and things like that. These are the uh, C.C. Campbell uh, cigarette, Brown, mm-hmm. the, the guy who I said got all our alumni list mm-hmm. built. He, he focused on that. And, and of course, I, I, I got to tell you about C.C. Campbell. He's, going, he's now passed, but um, he's gone to the first 10 or so, that's over 20 years, uh, re- reunion. He's a little guy. Mm-hmm. And now you know back in the time when I'm got the company and we get napalmed, mm-hmm. okay, he loses an ear. Yeah. So his whole area on the one side is now smeared. He's the one with the cigarettes playing about. But in reality, he, he ended up for 40 years or so with half his head scarred up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so these are the players and all gathered in the same room. And um, Downs comes in, so he's listening for a while, and he said, "No, it, it didn't work that way. They shot him down so bad he had to leave in this little room." <laughs> yeah, and that's why he doesn't get too much involved. Uh, there was a, uh, I like Mike a lot. Okay, uh, I remember if I met his wife, I don't remember. It. Um, Julie comes to my wife comes to all reunions and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Tiffany comes, she, not so much anymore. Uh, but he had to leave uh, because no one would agree with him. Mm. Only uh, the Horner and those guys. So I know Rich Horner uh, pretty well. He's gone to, uh, he's flown from the West Coast and then joined up with Julie and I. And then he and his wife and Julie and I went up together to uh, uh, Gettysburg where we had a reunion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at any rate, uh, this is a close rapport. And, and again, it's one of those type of things where you're in combat and you know that. Uh, so, so much is going on. One guy's thinking one thing, and the other you guys, and other guys like this. So, so much is going on at the same time that it's hard to uh, make a nice continuity story. So, this was another one of these uh, meetings that we had in the basement of the hotel in Reno to try to get our hands around what was going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, that deal with a. Uh, uh, Health, health, uh, health, and what is called uh, the Secretary of Health uh, about no smoking and things yeah, yeah. how dangerous it is for you. Surgeon General. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's him. And uh, I picked that up about uh, maybe four months before, meaning looking at all the uh, monthly uh, mm-hmm, act, mm-hmm. before Way City, we were still. Building up in, in um, Anwa, 
Mm-hmm. And I wasn't there, but I'm, the, the after action reports were there. And that's one of the classes that was given was on on uh, smoking, smoking and, and health and and this kind of stuff. So I added that. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're writing a book, I wasn't there. Those guys that don't remember anything, and they didn't. And I added that little vignette there. Yeah, yeah. So when I write, I do a creative, a nonfiction, if I will, because no one can remember what they said. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I said. These guys would say when they read the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why'd you call it a fiction? Someone gives me a red ass because because I called it a fiction. But in reality, yeah, there's a new category of books, and it's called creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I think nonfiction sell better than fictions, mm-hmm. uh, so I I think uh, either I'm going to go all nonfiction with this next last this one that I'm just about finished with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, they were off the subject. Uh, and- Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal. We have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny, funny shot. Yeah. Funny.